Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 128. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we bless you tonight and we thank you for the opportunity that we can study once again. We pray that you'll um, give us a heart to uh, understand and to um to seek your face and to to know your will, Lord. We know it's difficult at times to uh, to be able to discern how you're speaking to us, what you're saying to us, but we can know with certainty that you've given us your objective standards. They've been recorded for us in the pages of your word, your love letter to us. And so, to the degree that this is going to be our primary source of of Hearing your voice and discerning your will, let us continue to press forward, um, studying, reading, meditating, memorizing, sharing with others. Lord, um, the Bible is such an invaluable resource. Um, we dare not take it for granted. And so it's on that note, Holy Spirit, that we pray that you'll continue to um, make the pages alive to us. Help us to to um, um, continue to hide it down deep in our hearts so that um, you can activate the truths and cause us to take action and to, to um, live our lives according to um, what is contained therein. Um, be with us as we continue to um, uh, just uh, discuss difficult topics. Um, we don't know all of the ramifications and ins and outs of the topics that we're even discussing, but we're curious and we want to know and we seek to better understand. And so we want to strengthen our, our understanding and, and from that we can form um, decisions on how to, uh, uh, details on how to make decisions in life uh, and to, to move forward and put feet to our faith, so to say, so that our study doesn't just stop with study. It actually results in um, uh, a, a lifestyle that we lead. And so that's the goal of our study, Lord. Help us to put feet to our faith. Help us to put to practice the things that we're learning. And so, uh, Lord, I ask that you will be with each student, um, be with them where they're at, continue to protect us as your children, uh, continue to keep us safe, keep us healed, um, keep us healthy, uh, keep us vibrant in our faith, focused on Messiah, uh, looking for that blessed hope, uh, but yet at the same time we know that we're in this world, and so there are... Um, there are a number of things that we have to attend to that are related to this world. And so while we're here, Lord, we continue to rely on you for our provision, for our sustenance, for our, um, for our well-being. 
Um, go with us tonight, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of shame, Yeshua. Oh, man. All right, this is Live Internet Studies, and my name is Ariban Lyman Hanavi, and I'm delighted to bring these studies to you week after week. Let me just give you a brief bit of introduction to the studies, and then we'll jump right into it. Uh, I'm a Torah teacher at a real congregation in, in uh, Thornton, Colorado, Kehilatunuva, The Harvest. You can find us online at www.graftedin.com. We'd love to have you join us in person, but if not, we encourage you to catch our streaming services via YouTube. You can go to our website there and you can see us on my screen right now. Pastor Mark is going through a series called Navigating Through the Storm, kind of appropriate for the um, situations that we're facing right now. We encourage you to uh, take advantage of the uh, of the online resources if you're not yet comfortable with moving in and about uh, in uh, real life settings. Um, I've also got my own uh, web resource at tatesatora.com. You can find me online at www.tatesatora.com. Let me spell that out for you. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H dot com. And from the homepage, there's just a cluster of resources there. That's mostly what I offer. Um, there's more on my site, but that's the main uh, content right there. Just click around, uh, see what you like. Most of the content is written format. Um, but a lot of content is being turned into either uh, audio content like MP3s, uh, iTunes podcasts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And these days, a lot of what you what I've written is being turned into YouTube content as well, YouTube media, videos, short videos, long videos, things like that. So just have a look around and see what you like. I've also got a YouTube channel at www.youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetze Torah Ministries, all one word. Uh, once you're there, uh, have a look around at all the videos. Um, these days, I'm, I put out a lot of videos, short versions like you know, average five minutes, things you can digest in a short amount of time. And um, I'm uploading loading something to YouTube six times a week and uploading to iTunes that iTunes, iTunes that last day of the week. So basically seven days a week I'm I'm uploading something online, uh, besides all the written commentaries that I'm putting together and, and you know addressing emails and, and responding to YouTube comments and things like that. So I'm quite a busy busy beaver these days. Um, but if you hit my YouTube channel, make sure you do four things for me. Subscribe so that you can join the family. Two, hit the little bell that puts you in the best place to receive notifications. Three, hit the little thumbs up because I'm just absolutely confident that you're going to like what you're watching. And then number four, hit the little share button and share the content with uh, your friends and family members on social media and things like that. And um, that, that way we just kind of spread the blessings around, okay? This is the Live Internet Studies, and this is episode number 128, as I mentioned in my prayer. Uh, our recording date for this um, uh, video tonight is February the 13th, 2021, USA date and time. We meet each Saturday evening from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, and we cover basically two sub topics in the hour-long study. We've got the first 30 minutes dedicated to the Roman study called Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, oh my, and we're just chugging along. We're in part 46. I really have no idea how many parts there will be to it because I added that phrase unplugged to indicate that I'm not really tied to one lengthy commentary, whether short or long, and so I'm not really working from any one set of notes that's set in stone 
Rather, it's kind of just um, it kind of grows and, and shrinks as, as, as needed. Uh, you know, in other words, I, I keep adding and editing and things like that. So, and otherwise, I just kind of go off the cuff and, and tell you what I've studied this week and then share that part with you. So that's why it's called unplugged. There's not really one set standard. So I don't really know how long it's going to go. It could be we could be in part 46 of 100 parts or I may bring this thing to a close in one month. Who knows? We'll see. It depends on the Holy Spirit. Segment two, the 30 minutes, is given over to the study um, entitled Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. So it's a, a, an ongoing study as well. Although this one, um, uh, there are three parts to it, and we're, or three papers, and we're in paper two. Paper three is still being written. And so this does have kind of an ending. I just don't know exactly when. It depends on um, uh, when I finish the paper and when we finish paper two. But paper two is entitled Yahweh and Yeshua, part 63. So it's kind of long, um, but uh, we're trying to just look at every verse that's relevant to the topic of Trinity and kind of be equal, uh, you know, give equal time to the different views out there so that we can kind of come to a, a, a well-rounded discussion. We watch uh, YouTube videos during this study, and tonight we'll be watching a video entitled God's Word Biblical Hermeneutics, kind of a, um, a study on a study on how to study, <laughs> something like that. All right, and uh, as always, if you're interested in joining us during these live internet studies, uh, find a way to interact with. Sorry about that. Find a way to um, to interact with Skype on your computer, um, w whether through your browser or through the web app. And if you've got a Skype account, that's a bonus, but you don't need one. But our our live studies are on via Skype. Um, what you'll primarily need is the Skype group link so that you can connect to the group study live each week. Go to my website at tatesitor.com. Scroll to the very bottom of the web page in that black section that you see down there. And from that section, um, you can click on the little icon that looks like an envelope. That will send me an email. As you can see on my screen right now, you got the little red arrow pointing as his email button. Click and send me an email. Tell me you're interested in joining the Skype classes, and I will send you the Skype link, and you can join us live each week. Because remember, I uh, offer um, an after-chat study where we just dialogue with one another, all the students in the live room. We chat with one another. It's off mic, so you don't have to worry about getting recorded and uploaded somewhere. Um, share your thoughts. Um, and questions and things like that with one another, but it's exclusive to the live Skype chat group. It's not going to be recorded anywhere, so uh, it's not like the um, like you see some uh, live streams that get uploaded, and on the right, running down the right side, um, you see the uh, the chatting. Uh, I don't I don't have that feature. So um, if you want to join the chat afterwards, well then join us live each week via Skype. And then one more note real quick, since you're down there on that side of my uh, uh, site, if the Lord is blessing you to be a blessing to others, then I would be um, privileged if you would bless me. This is a way you can do that. Click the little yellow donate button and you can send funds securely through PayPal. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to Romans 14, the study entitled um, uh, Feast and Fast and Food, Oh My, and I updated this commentary last week or, or something to that effect, and uh, I added a new section entitled um, Introduction, Background, and Historical Audience. And I apologize that this section should have been there a long time ago. It should have been there when I first put the study together a year ago, but uh, um, 
I didn't think I would need to have so much background to support the perspective that I'm trying to present. Um, I thought it would be somewhat self-evident if I just showed you certain scriptures and things like that. But uh, based on the interaction that I'm getting from the students and the pushback, which is healthy, uh, from um, people who are watching the videos, and most of this is done via email. Some of it's done via the YouTube comments, and, and some of it's live with my live students. But based on the pushback, based on the questions, based on the, 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 the healthy resistance to the position I'm, I'm presented, this means I've got people thinking. And so it forced me to go back and put just a little bit more background and historical audience that I feel actually supports the position that I'm taking on who Paul was writing to and why it's relevant for us today. So give me a second. Let me blow this up because it'll be easier for me to read. And it'll be easier for you to see. I think I, I think 400 is what I experimented with. All right, so we've been reading through these um, notes. We left off last week um, talking about who is Paul writing to and why is it important for us to know the background. Generally speaking, let me just say this up front. Generally speaking, it's agreed upon by um, biblical authorship, biblical research, uh, both Christian and non-Christian. So we've got research that can fall on two sides of the tracks. We've got research that comes primarily from Christian resources uh, that's um, churned out of um, seminaries and and uh, um and uh, pulpits and commentaries and and much of it is christian in nature that meaning is written by christians for christians but at the same time i'm sure you would agree with me that we needn't discount the importance of researching a, a topic using historical resources whether that historical resource is a book christian or not because at the end of the day we're talking about events that took place on planet Earth, not on a different planet. And therefore, historically speaking, the Bible is, among other things, a history book at the end of the day as well. Yes, it's theology. Yes, it's God's inspired words given to mankind, but it is also history. And so to the extent that we can use historical research from historians, whether they're Christian or not, shouldn't matter. We're looking for those who are experts in their field. And so sometimes historians can come alongside and augment and back up and bolster an argument that a Christian author might be presenting, or sometimes the reverse. Christianity, in its haste to get theology out of the door, will sometimes skimp on the historical details, or they're not prepared to address the historical because they're not really trained in that field. And thus, we can use, um, sometimes you'll hear Christian authors uh, spit out some fact, and what, it, what turns out to be, it's not very historically factual. And so we have a historian that'll come and kind of clean that up a little bit. And so, but the, the, at the end of the day, it's not to shame the Christian authors, nor to look down on them, nor to even diminish the, the central message that the Bible's trying to teach, you know, by reducing it to a history book. That's not what I'm trying to do. The point I'm trying to make is that in our effort to study the Bible, let's use the resources that are available to us. And if that includes historical authors, then that works as well. So what we're doing is we're looking at history, and what I have found in my um, research is that what Paul is dealing with is a um, primarily a group of Christians. He's writing to Christians. The brothers are Christians, um, but it's done within the um, within a worldview, within a um, a social setting that is aware of the Judaisms and the Jewish presence around them. How big or small that is, that's what we're trying to ascertain by looking at this part of my commentary. So we're just, we're talking about the expulsion from Rome of the Jewish presence 
in the right around the time that Paul was probably putting his letter together, right in the mid-50s of the first era. And why that would be important for us is perhaps if um, Rome expelled a good number of Jewish people from from the the region at the time that Paul sent the letter. Well, then the readership would have, which would have been um, believers, the brethren, the brothers, largely would have been um, comprised of Gentiles, and thus uh, we have a Gentile majority and Jewish Jewish minority, and this would maybe lend a certain flavor to the letter. Paul being aware of the expulsion, Paul being aware of the um, dynamics of the groups, perhaps maybe played into that, and perhaps maybe that explains why um, maybe in the end we don't really have a um, a strong emphasis on Jewish values and things like that. Maybe, maybe he's really writing to a Gentile audience, and he just wants them to kind of go their merry way and don't worry about the the unsaved Jews, those people who got kicked out of Rome. But if the expulsion was not as large as we might have been taught, I'm not saying it didn't happen. I do believe it happened. But if it wasn't as extensive as we thought, then perhaps maybe Paul wanted his Gentile audience to still retain their awareness of their Jewish um, communities that were that they're placed among. Even more so, perhaps Paul wanted his Gentile Christian audience to have a, a responsibility to the unsaved Jewish communities that were around them. So let's talk about that topic. So last week I um, finished up at the end of this um, paragraph, uh, and we're going to we uh, we're ready to talk about uh, the uh, expulsion that Claudius, Emperor Claudius, um, uh, tried to make or sought to make uh, uh, you know relevant and and um, informative or or uh, what, should, what should we say. Um, um, historical uh, event that, you know, would kind of move things along in a direction that he wanted to, you know, put the Jews out because they're troublemakers. But let's, let me read this paragraph one more time um, and, and stop doing that. I need to turn off that setting. Um, uh, let's read this as a, as a uh, segue into uh, this week's study. And I think I'll finish this section uh, tonight. Uh, here's what I have to say. I found that most Christian authors tend to prefer to play up the expulsion by Claudius, allowing it to define the audience Romans, Romans as a Gentile majority in a Jewish minority sort of way, resulting in the Gentiles turning out as the strong, i.e. the powerful, and the Jews turning out as the weak, i.e. those without power. And I, I'm purposely making reference to a, um, a commentary that I uh, referenced maybe last week or a week before about, uh, it was put together by a Christian group, Biblical Bible Project or something, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, I'll look it up later, but they talk about how that the strong mentioned in Romans 15, perhaps a better way to understand this word strong is as the powerful, which would kind of directly um, tie it into the fact that the Gentiles were the majority and being Roman citizens or something to that effect, in the social setting of their day, they would have had power, they would have had privilege um, to do certain things that Jews wouldn't have. That means the Jews in that, that survived, that were still in Rome at the time of Paul's writing, or had begun to return once the edict had expired at the death of Claudius, which we're going to read about here in a moment, then this would put the Jews in the minority position, socially speaking, 
and perhaps the word that Paul used, which is the the an alpha privative, um, with a negate negative of the word powerful. So it's like the unpowerful. Uh, we just simply have an alpha privative in front of the word power. Um, dunatos and antunatos is something to that effect. So those without power, this would make sense to be the to uh, be describing the Jewish minority in the social setting. So I like that approach. I think it has some weight to it. Um, I can kind of run with that. But Paul's also talking about, remember he says, the weak in faith. So um, how does that play into the idea of uh, the position I'm taking, that the weak in faith were actually the, those Jews? I do believe they were the ones that were weak, but I don't believe the weakness was due to their social status. Um, it could be, right? That would seem to make sense. The weakness being without power, those in a social status where they were the minority. But uh, there seems to be some other ways to, to um, uh, view this phrase weak in faith, and that could be weak in the faith of Messiah. But let's keep studying this a bit more. So as I mentioned, um, I don't deny the basic premise about the um, expulsion, and it's historically accurate to describe the Gentile Christians as the majority and the Jewish Christians as the minority, especially if the snapshot of individual greetings provided by Paul at the end of Romans is any sort of representative sampling of the groups he was writing to, right? So um, go back and read Romans 16, and you'll see that the majority of people he's addressing in, at the end of his letter are Gentiles. So this would seem to go along with the idea that a majority of Gentiles are the recipients, a minority of Jews are the recipients, but to what degree were the Jews there and why does it matter? That's kind of where we're going with this. However, in my own limited personal research, I've learned that it is possible that the edict did not result in as many Jews being expelled as previously thought, and that those remaining Jewish communities actually very likely had an important impact on Paul's ideological framework from which to construct his letter, assuming we are correct in that Paul wrote the letter shortly after the Jews began to return back to Rome, which itself was after the death of Claudius in AD 54, making the exile last a mere short five years or so. So you understand where I'm going with that. I do believe the exile happened, but I don't believe it was as it was as significant as we read about based on and we have a, we don't have a lot of resources to work from anyway so there's kind of some guesswork on either side of it so you'd have to agree that my position is as plausible that there there's probably more Jews that were present as is the position that many Christians take that hey just all the Jews just kind of rolled over like a like an obedient labrador retriever and just got out when Emperor Claudius said get out is that what really happened you know, I'm not sure so sure about that. Um, I go on to say, indeed, even mainstream Christian authors will readily admit that Jewish and Gentile social tensions and struggles represent some of the foremost concerns to our famous apostle to the Gentiles. So that's part of the reason why we're curious about who were the um, recipients. Again, let me make sure you guys aren't misunderstanding what I'm saying. I'm not supposing that it's not a Gentile majority and Jewish minority. I do believe that's the case. What we're trying to determine is, if, uh, the, since there was an expulsion, how many people were left behind, and to the degree that the expulsion impacted the tone of Paul's letter as to, is he just going to tell the Gentiles, you know, just keep going on, you guys are the new, basically I'm paraphrasing, uh, you know, I'm, I'm overemphasizing, I'm, 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 I'm 
uh, I'm not. I'm using hyperbole is what I'm trying to say. Um, you got you guys, you Gentiles. You don't really have to worry about Israel because they're done with. They're kind of off the side. You know, you've basically replaced them um, for all pract- intensive practical purposes, right? They rejected Messiah. So just kind of let me give you instructions on how do you live your lives. Don't worry about the Torah. Don't worry about Jewish identity. Don't worry about the synagogue life. Don't worry about Jewish authorities and things like that. Um, here's what you need to do to live your life. But uh, let's let's again. I, I challenge. Even though I don't hear pastors like saying it that exact way, you know, Paul wasn't telling the Gentiles that they need to ignore the, ignore the Jews. But practically speaking, it comes across uh, as being a, um, and I use this phrase that I've borrowed from uh, other historians, a zero sum game. And when we may, when we talk about zero sum, we're talking about if you took two circles that represented two different players in any given game, right? Player A on one side, player B on the other side. Well, then. Um, in a zero-sum contest, only one person can be the winner, which means the other person can be the loser, which means there's no sum, no addition of the sharing of the, the winnings, right? You can't have an overlap of the circles where in the middle there, uh, you win and I win. That's not zero-sum um, mindset, zero-sum philosophy, or zero-sum um, concept. Zero-sum is where one wins and the other loses. And so in terms of theological uh, concepts, when it comes to practically way, describing the way Romans and the way Paul wrote, many Christian theologians, without even realizing it, often describe the church as inheriting all the blessings and Israel inheriting all the curses. Thus, the church wins and Israel loses. That's a zero-sum concept. That's what we're challenging. All right, so Wikipedia, we quoted them earlier, and they again make this careful note. Here's what I have to say about the um, expulsion. A brief statement in Divus Claudius 25 mentions agitations by the Jews, which led Claudius, Roman emperor from AD 41 to 54, to expel them from Rome, right? So we know that already. This is common uh, his- history. But let's keep reading. Here's what that quote from Claudius reads. Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he, the emperor Claudius, expelled them from Rome. All right, so uh, let's talk about the expulsion. The expulsion event Suetonius refers to is necessarily later than AD 41. So we're talking about one historian named uh, Suetonius, or Suetonius as I've heard it described. And um, he describes the expulsion, but not in a lot of detail. He simply gives these details. This is what we can infer. Uh, it is necessarily later than AD 41 and earlier than AD 54. And of course, we say earlier than 54 because that's the date that uh, Emperor Claudius was actually murdered. So um, he couldn't have given an edict after he was murdered. They go on to say, The expulsion is mentioned in the last quarter of a list of Claudius's actions during his reign. However, precisely during the dating However, precisely dating the expulsion from Suetonius provides some challenges because Suetonius writes in a topical rather than chronological fashion. Let me scroll up here. Um, necessitating the use of other texts to pinpoint the time. The dating of the Edict of Claudius for the expulsion of Jews relies on three separate texts beyond uh, Suetonius's own reference, which in chronological order are the reference to the trial of the Apostle Paul by Galileo in the Acts of the Apostles, right, Acts 18.2, which we read last week, 
Then we have the reference uh, his, by historical uh, historian Cassius Dio's reference in history. Uh, we have a reference to his work there. And then we have, lastly, a Christian author, Paulus Erosius, 5th century mention in history, uh, 7.6. That's a reference that we're going to look at here in a moment. And these are of a uh, uh, the uh, uh, Erosius's reference is of a non-extant Josephus reference. So historians reference well. He made reference to a, a, um, a quote from uh, Josephus, but we don't even have that reference anymore. What, what, where's your primary resource? They go on to say, most scholars agree that the expulsion of Jews mentioned in the book of Acts is consistent with this report by Suetonius. And that's interesting that um, that we have a historian agreeing with the writer to the book of Acts, which of course would have been Luke, which is good. This tells us that Luke had his ducks in a row, although Luke didn't give us all the details. And we also notice that Luke simply recorded that uh, Claudius issued a decree for the Jews to be expelled. Uh, we don't know whether or not the Jews followed through or whether it was um, uh, carried out to the extent that uh, perhaps maybe it was written down. Donna Hurley notes that the Acts provides a date of 49 and adds that neither Tacitus nor Dio reports an expulsion in 49 or 50, as we'd have expected if there had been a large exodus of the Jewish community, concluding that all, like Luke writes about, is probably hyperbole. So we have all of the Jews were expelled from Rome, is what Luke wrote in chapter 18. Well, did he, was he just talking about all of the Jews? Was, was it kind of an overstatement? Or did he mean all of the Jews of a certain faction? Even though he didn't write the word faction, how are we to understand that? There's a little bit of ambiguity, a little bit of, um, what do we call it, um, uh, uh, equivocation going on there. Uh, they go on to say, the passage may suggest that in the mid-first century, the Romans still viewed Christianity as a Jewish sect. Now, this is an important detail that we need to kind of perk up and listen to. We're fond of saying that Christianity survived on their own, minus the Jewish presence in Rome. But to what degree would Christianity have been viewed by the Roman society as a separate religion? Romans viewed Christianity as a sect of Judaism. So if you're going to kick all the Jews out, what about these sectarian Jews? I'm using air quotes with my fingers to refer to the Christians. Let's consider that. Keep that in your mind when you're reading all of these historical accounts. Historians debate whether or not the Roman government distinguished between Christians and Jews prior to Nerva's modification of the Fiscus Judaicus in AD 96. So what was going on is that there was an emperor who came along later, right, in the towards the end of the century in AD 96 by the name of Nerva, and he modified the existing what we call Fiscus Judaicus, which was a, a tax that would have um, imposed certain levies against uh, the Jewish communities, but allowed them to um, enjoy certain religious freedoms like being able to hold public worship, um, to uh, uh, be exempt from certain emperor worship and, and, and Saturnalia worship, and um, um, you know giving their daughters to prostitution, forced prostitution, uh, uh, pagan prostitution. And so there was a, there was a good number of uh, rules that your average Roman citizen, whether he was Jewish or not, um, would have been expected to adhere to in this day unless you were afforded the exemptions under the Fiscus Judaicus. And so we could think of it in terms of being taxed. The Jews were taxed for their religious freedom. The non-Jews didn't have to pay that tax. Oh, well, um, yeah, if you weren't Jewish, you didn't have to, to do that. But if you were a religious group that was affiliated with Judaism, if you were a sect of Judaism, then you were... Um, 
um, you were exempted from this particular tax because you weren't part of Judaism. Sorry, if you were a, uh, a sect of Judaism, then you paid that tax. But notice, uh, historically speaking, from, from the period of 96 onward, practicing Jews paid the tax, but Christians did not. Now, why is that significant? Because it shows the development of the social religious um, distinctions that were being um, formulated around that time of year in Rome separating Jews from the non-Jews when it came to religious practices. So what we're saying is, in plain terms, Rome recognized anyone who looked like a Jew, walked like a Jew, talked like a Jew, and, and worshipped the same religious God as the Jews as Jewish. This would include primarily the Christian groups who were subsets of Judaism, Remember, our own writers to the Apostolic Scriptures described Christianity as a sect of Judaism. They called it the way, and Paul talks about that as well. Um, even though the term Christian is brought up, it's still um, underneath the, uh, the understanding of a Jewish subset, a sect, uh, um, an, an offshoot of Judaism. So Christianity as we know it today was not really um, around in Paul's day. There was no um, separate religion known as Judaism. Rome forbade new religions from, from uh, being formulated and being practiced openly uh, or secretly in their day. Emperor worship was mandated, and to the degree that you didn't worship the emperor as a god, then you could be tried for treason uh, and you could be punished and perhaps even lose your life, uh, depending on what charges were brought up against you. So the point was, a good Roman citizen worshipped the emperor and participated in the Saturnalia and all the paganism and the pantheism of gods and all of that, unless you were exempt through some of these, um, uh, um, like I said, e exemptions, because you were either Jewish or worshipped like a Jew, meaning the God-fearers fell underneath this exemption. but And the Christians fell underneath this exemption up to a certain point when Rome began to separate who was a Christian and who was a Jew. Now that bears relevance for us if Paul is writing to Christians, but Romans still considering that these Christians were attached to uh, Jewish subgroups. Cassius Dio makes a comment in his works regarding an, a an action earlier, an action early in the reign of Claudius. He states that, um, sorry, um, as for the Jews who had again uh, increased so greatly that by reason of their multitude it would have been hard without raising a tumult to bar them from the city, Rome, he, Claudius, did not drive them out but ordered them while continuing their traditional mode of life not to hold meetings. So this is interesting. Let's keep uh, following this vein for a moment. The similarities are noteworthy for both Suetonius and Cassius Dio dealt with Jews, Tumult, Claudius, the city, and expulsion, and Cassius Dio does provide a chronological context that points it to the year 8041. However, Cassius Dio does not mention Crestus or any cause for the emperor's actions. Moreover, sorry, uh, moreover, Cassius Dio says that Claudius did not drive the Jews out of the city, which prompts Slingerland to conclude that, quote, Suetonius Claudius 25 does not refer to the event narrated in Dio, uh, chapter 60. Perhaps they're two different events or something to that effect. Um, Rainer Reisner states that ancient historians generally hold that Cassius Dio here may have referred to an earlier, more limited action against some Jews, which was later expanded by Claudius to the expulsion of a larger group of Jews. And that's what I mentioned earlier, that Perhaps we're talking about not as many people were expelled. Perhaps we're talking about all of the people in a, uh, 
uh, in connection to a certain event or a certain um, disturbance in Rome or something to that effect. We'll see how this bears relevance uh, later on in the study when I make a quote from uh, Mark um, um, Nanus. Uh, continuing with uh, Wikipedia, the 5th century Christian writer Paulus Erosius makes a possible reference to the event, citing two sources. Let's read his record. Josephus reports in his ninth year the Jews were expelled by Claudius from the city, but Suetonius, who speaks as follows, influences me more. This is uh, Erosius speaking. Um, he says, Claudius expelled them from expelled from Rome the Jews, constantly writing at the instigation of Christ, Christo, or rather, uh, Cra. Uh, there's some some typos going on in in or some uh, ambiguities going on with this account because of the um, uh, similarities between the the phrase Christo and Cresto. We'll look at that in a moment. As far as whether he had commanded that the Jewish the, the Jews writing against Christ Christum be restrained and checked, or also had wanted the Christians as uh, persons of a cognate religion to be expelled, it is not at all to be discerned. So what we're trying to say is that it's possible that when the Romans told the Jews to get out, that the Romans, we already know that they would have wanted, they didn't distinguish between Messianic Jews versus non-Messianic Jews. They just said all Jews. But if Christianity was still a subset of the Jewish religion at the time, then how would the Romans have been able to distinguish Christians from Jews when they said all you worshipers of this God this religion of Judaism you guys get out wouldn't that have included many Christians as well um, it would have impacted them how could Rome at the time have said okay Jews whether messianic or not you guys get out but Christians you guys can stay and to make it even a little bit more complicated how could Rome have distinguished Jewish Roman citizens from Christian Roman citizens when their religion looked nearly the same. The God-fearing Roman citizen, whether he was Jewish or Gentile, would have looked very similar uh, to the Romans who were not religious, the ones sort, you know, trying to get everybody out. That's some of the details that we have to begin to think about when we think about, when we talk about, oh yeah, all the, all the Jews got kicked out of Rome. Well, from our perspective today, when Judaism's so separate and distinct from Christianity, it's easy to imagine that, oh yeah, see that guy over there? See him? The one talking about Torah, the one talking about God, the one talking about um, a Messiah? Yeah, he's a Jew. Get rid of him. Oh, but see that guy over there wearing a cross, and he's talking about Jesus, uh, and he's not wearing any religious garb? Oh, he's a Christian. Okay. By today's standards, it's easy to separate who's who, but in, in the first century, you know, it wasn't as easy to separate who was really a Jewish, a practitioner of the Jewish religion. My point is that Christianity was still very much resemblance of Judaism to the point that the Romans probably weren't as easy. The Romans wouldn't have had an easy time distinguishing who's who to kick out. I mean, we imagine that they kicked out the, the I mean, we already know that they kicked out the uh, uh, Messianic Jews along with the non-Messianic Jews, particularly all the more if the um, argument was over matters of Messiah, Christ, right? Wouldn't the non-Messianic Jews would have said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't kick us out. We're not Messianic Jews. We're not following after Christ. We don't have any any um, vested interest in this Christ guy, this Jesus fella. You know, don't kick us out. Why kick us out? We're not the ones causing problems. But Rome would have just said, you know what? Jews who believe in Jesus, Jews who don't believe in Jesus, 
Jewish wannabes, you guys all look the same to us, and you're all causing problems, so just all of you, get out, get out, get out. In other words, Rome seems to be trying to purge that region of anything that was religiously Jewish, so that the result would have been a kind of a secular Rome that was left behind, secular to the point that it was allowed paganism and emperor worship, but it, it expunged itself of anything that smacked of this monotheistic Jewish religion that was rejecting Roman paganism. That's the point I'm trying to bring up. The first source used by Erosius comes from a non-extant quote from Josephus. It is this which provides the date of AD 49. His second source is Suetonius Claudius, which we've already read before. All right, so now let's go back to my own um, uh, commentary. These are my own words. Why bring all of this up at all if Paul was in the end strongly pushing for Jewish and Gentile equality in the early Roman church, right? I mean, what's the big deal? What difference does it make how many Jews were actually expelled or not? Perhaps if we can allow that enough of the non-Christian Jewish community was present during Paul's penning of the letter, uh, then we can begin to appreciate the very real socio-religious dynamic that the predominantly Gentile Christian church at Rome had to contend with as they sought to implement Paul's life-changing gospel message and put into practice a very real practical way that produced both spiritual and natural growth for both Jews and Gentiles in the, quote, household of faith, in quote, reference Galatians 6.10. You guys understanding what I'm saying here? Um, if there were still a lot of Jews left around, what impact would they have had on Paul's writing, and how would Paul have wanted his Christian Gentile audience to be aware of the Jewish communities that were still there, and what concern would that have posed for the Gentile Christians who had uh, suddenly found themselves in a majority position? Quoting Keener once again, we read concerning the expulsion. Let's turn to Dr. Keener like we quoted last time. He's got a heading in his uh, study entitled Jewish and Gentile Elements in the Church, and this will be very uh, informative for us. The church's origins in Rome probably stemmed from Jewish believers there, right? Reference Acts 2.10. Um, but clearly it spread beyond them. Paul's audience was among the Gentiles, right? Read Romans 1.5. They were at least partly Gentile, again, Romans 11, and probably mostly Gentile. Uh, Romans 1 and 16. Many contend that Jewish believers and God-fearing Gentiles remained in the synagogues in Rome for some time, explaining why Paul can presume so much knowledge of Scripture and Jewish perspective in the letter. You understand the point there? If there were not some Jewish people that remained in Rome for Paul when he wrote his letter, then how could he make so many references to Jewish scriptures if the Gentiles wouldn't have had resources? I mean, it's not like they could have just um, gone to their down to their local Bible bookstore and picked up a copy of the Tanakh, right? The Old Testament, that wasn't there. So Paul makes a lot of references. In fact, comparing Romans with Galatians, these are the two letters that Paul quotes the most from the Tanakh. And yet, if the Gentile Christians supposedly didn't have any Jewish presence there to um, you know, get resources from, like borrow their Torah scroll or um, something that in fact had access to the synagogues, you know, because supposedly all of the Jews were kicked out. Well, then a lot of Paul's reasoning from Scripture would have fallen on deaf ears because it would have been speaking to Gentile Christians who had no kind of um, first-hand knowledge of Jewish texts and things like that. At some point in the 40s, uh, the Jewish community in Rome was apparently divided over questions of the identity of the Messiah, probably Jesus. As a result, the Emperor Claudius followed... 
the precedent of the earlier emperor Tiberius and banished the Jews from Rome, um, compare from the garbled account in Suetonius uh, Claudius. Given any context in our sources, this may have happened in about the year 49. He's not really saying anything different than what I've already talked about. However, let's keep listening to Dr. Uh, uh, Keener here. Scholars debate whether the entire Jewish community actually left. That sentence alone should cause you to stop and, and just remember that history isn't always, especially ancient history, isn't always easy to um, interpret when you have very scant accounts of the details of what's going on. So you hear a pastor stand up in the pulpit and say, all the Jews were kicked out of Rome, and therefore this proves to us that um, uh, Romans was written primarily to Gentiles, and therefore there wasn't really any Jewish presence at all, so Jew Paul didn't really have to worry about any Jewish presence, so we don't really have to concern ourselves with that. But wait a minute. What resources are you quoting, Mr. Pastor? Where are you getting all this information from? Yes, Luke says that Emperor Claudius issued a decree, but that doesn't say that it was carried out the way that Emperor Claudius uh, wanted it to happen, right? I mean, did he really have the power just to just tell all the Jews, get up and get out? We're talking on the low end, maybe 20,000 Jews, and by some estimates on the high end, maybe 50,000 Jewish people, many of them perhaps Roman citizens, that were just told to get up and get out in a short space of about five to ten years? Right? Let's come and let's stop and think about that for a moment. It would be difficult to reclaim property, right, if all you know twenty to fifty thousand Jews got kicked out of a place. Hence difficult to imagine generations of Jewish occupation coming to a complete end and then resuming their lives in Rome after Claudius Edict was repealed on his death in 54 CE, right? Just stop and use common sense for a moment. Let's keep reading. Certainly the many Jews who were Roman citizens would not have been expelled. I mean, stop and think about that. Roman citizenship was a highly sought-after um, prize, commodity, a thing to have in Paul's day. And you could even appeal to it. Remember when Paul was put on trial, he appealed to his uh, to his Roman citizen, hey, you can't do X, Y, and Z to me without certain, um, uh, uh, what do we say, um, a due process, because I'm a Roman citizen. I mean, the minute you mention, like Paul did in the book of Acts, that I'm a Roman citizen, then suddenly the, the Roman guards are like, oh, wait a minute, there's so, you know, Roman citizens have a certain privilege about them as compared to, say, people who did not have Roman citizenship or maybe slaves or, or, or people groups who were, who were um, living and mulling about in and throughout Rome but didn't have this privileged citizenship. So if we've got historians telling us, you know, not very many, <laughs> three, telling us that the Jews were expelled from Rome, but we don't stop to think, well, how many of those were Roman citizens? Where, but what about their rights? Could they have just been expected to get up and get out? I mean, wouldn't they have appealed? You know, didn't they have lawyers? <laughs> you know, so we, we, we have to stop and think about that for a second. When we thought we're just like muddling up, rattling off all these facts that, oh, all these Jews got kicked out. Oh, okay, they just rolled over like lap dogs and, and just got up and get, you know, got out. They didn't stop to, to uh, 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 what do we say, they didn't stop to appeal uh, the fact that they were Roman citizens or to, uh, you know, object the fact that, that they've got certain rights or things like that. We don't stop and think about that sometimes, but we have to stop and think about that. Nevertheless, uh, Dr. Uh, Keener continues, nevertheless, Luke, like Suetonius, speaks of Jews being expelled, right? He Luke, in all fairness, simply mentions that the edict was issued. Luke doesn't actually say that they were expelled, if you go back and read the verse. At least the way I understand it. Though prudently admitting the cause, right? Lou doesn't say why they got expelled. 
Whether all were expelled and whether all who were officially expelled actually left, or at least those visible in the original conflict must have left. So that's, again, very important. Whether all were expelled and whether all who were officially expelled actually left, at least those visible in the uh, conflict must have left. So that's the fairness that we're trying to say. Yes, the expulsion took place. <clears throat> How many were expelled? We don't know. Um, at least all those who were involved with the uh, uh, um, the disturbance were probably expecting that all of those got. But when we say all got expelled, we don't always, we don't have to say that it was all Jews. We could say, let's say there were fifty thousand Jews in Rome at the time, and let's say, um, let's say ten thousand were involved in this dispute. That's still a high number. Let's say in Proclius it says. You, all you rabble-rousing Jews, get out. And let's say he has the power to kick out those 10,000. Well, hello, that still leaves 40,000 Jews living in Rome. That's still a sizable amount of people. So when Paul writes to, to the uh, letter to the book of Romans, there's still a good enough amount of, of national Jews or unsaved Jews, a presence that would have um, uh, represented um, enough people that brought it to Paul's concern that he's going to write a good portion of his letter, write chapters 9 through 11, and deal with unsaved Israel, um, talking to them, uh, talking about them to the uh, the, the Gentile Christians. Um, let's finish this section right here, and then I think uh, we'll stop at where it says conclusions, and we'll pick that up next week. Dr. Keener writes, Luke indicates that Priscilla and Aquila, Jews in Rome who were apparently already believers and possibly church leaders when Paul met them had left, right? So I mentioned this earlier, the unbelieving Jews and the believing Jews both got kicked out, at least those within this certain, um, uh, uh, within the scope of this particular disturbance that we're talking about. It is likely that a substantial number of Jewish Christians and perhaps all their leaders left Rome at this point. So that's all we're talking about. This means that Gentile Christians had probably constituted the bulk of the Roman church and its leadership for at least five years and may represent a number of the house churches greeted in Romans 16. Those with Jewish leaders, as in 6, 5, 16, 5, and 7, may have organized after many Jews returned. Uh, Dr. Keener continues, Given the different cultural orientation of congregations in the same city, probably at least as loosely connected as the different synagogues, it is not surprising that misunderstandings would arise between groups with a predominantly Jewish ethos. Some Gentiles, especially former adherents to the synagogue, may have held the Jewish position, and some especially culturally sensitive Jews, probably including Aquila and Priscilla, may not have insisted on Gentiles observing the whole law, but at least two basic sides seem to have existed nonetheless. nonetheless. And we'll stop there with the um, quotes from uh, Dr. Keener. Next week we'll finish this. This is quite lengthy. We'll finish with the conclusions to this um, uh, part of my commentary that I've added where we're trying to ascertain how many Jews were left in, in Rome, why does it matter to us when we're interpreting the book of Romans, and does it bear relevance for our uh, interaction with maybe unsaved Jewish people today. All right, so that's, that'll do it for um, uh, the Romans 14 study. Let's turn now to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity, and let's just take a few moments to go through the uh, content. There's not a lot to um, uh, look at again tonight. We're working our way through this uh, table. Let me bump the font back down to 300. That's a little better the size. Um, we're working our way down through this table that Karm provided for us, and um, last week we looked at... Um, the fact that it is right here in this row that it is the father who sanctifies us in 1 Thessalonians 5:23 it's the son who sanctifies us in Hebrews 2:11 
And it's the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us in 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Let's look tonight at this column, or this row, I'm sorry, of information. It is the Father who is the life giver, or who gives life, in Genesis 2-7 and John 5-21. It is the Son who gives life in John 1-3 and in John 5-21 again. And it is the Holy Spirit who gives life or, or supplies life um, in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, and 8. So those are the passages we're going to look at. So first, uh, before we um, uh, 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 jump into anything further, let's just uh, look at the passages in question. First one is Genesis 2, 7. Let's just turn there. And this is familiar territory for any of you who've read your Bible. Right over this side of the page, um, Moshe writes, Then the Lord God formed uh, the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So who gives life to man? God. And we could just supply the phrase God the Father, even though it doesn't say God the Father. It says Lord God. But when we're talking about the, the Trinity or the nature of God, it became um, common terminology, in at least later on, that when God was mentioned, it was the Father God that was being referenced. It was the eternality, this, this eternal Father who was in reference, uh, owing to the fact that <clears throat> that God had already become known as the God, the Father of Israel, right? Israel's my firstborn son, things like that. So we can just apply the phrase God the Father, even though it doesn't mention the Father's name. So God is the one who breathes life into mankind. Who gives us life? God the Father. The second verse was John 5.21, and uh, this one is going to be overlapped with the Son. So let's look at this real quick. John 5.21, let me scroll down. These are Yeshua's words himself. He says, quote, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So in the discussion, in a discussion about resurrection, Yeshua speaking in third person, speaking of the Son, namely himself, and comparing how that his own father, remember God, can bring life to a lifeless body, namely resurrection, Yeshua says unambiguously that the Father raises the dead and gives them life. So that corresponds with Genesis. God the Father breathes the breath of life into the nostrils of a man, and the man becomes a living creature, or he becomes, the, he becomes a living person, he comes to life. But so also, in comparison, Yeshua says, the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, does this mean that the Son could resurrect a person? Yes, we know he can and did. Yeshua resurrected a few different people, right? Lazarus is the first one I'm thinking off the top of my head. He called Lazarus out of the grave. Therefore, Yeshua has the power of resurrection as well. He has the power to resurrect the body, to bring life from lifelessness. But more likely, Yeshua is also alluding to um, eternal life, the Son gives life to whom he will. We know that later on, um, he's going to talk about eternal life, right? In verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Eternal life. So not just physical life, not just can Yeshua raise a person physically from the dead, but Yeshua has the power to give a person eternal life. But we're just talking about life as regards the phrase life and how it is used in the Apostolic Scriptures and throughout the Bible, there's an overlap. I understand there's a certain um, ambiguity or a bit of um, 
uh, equivocation going on with the phrase life, maybe even a play on words at time, right? Yeshua says, the son gives life to whom he will. Is he talking about physical life? Is he talking about eternal life? Well, again, uh, allowing for the equivocation of his phrase, he could be talking about physical life as in regards to um, uh, Lazarus, and he could be talking about eternal life as regards to anyone who confesses faith in him. So it goes both ways. All right, and so that's the same passage that we're going to look at, uh, or that references um, the, the second part of this uh, column here, uh, the Son gives life, John 5.21. But notice there's an earlier reference in John 1.1, 1, 1, which is actually tied more to God being the creator and the one who gives life and brings life to man. Right, remember, the Genesis account is a creation account. God being the creator, is the one who formed man from the dust of the ground, right? So God created man, and then God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and thus man became a living creature. So notice the tie-in between God as creator and God as the one who gives life. Based on that note, we can turn to John 1.3, and recall we've looked at this verse in the past, that John tells us, as speaking of this eternal word that was with God and was God, this word, this eternal word, all things were made through this eternal word, right? He's the creator, and without him was not anything made that was made. So the life, it goes on to say in verse 4, I think in the, in the column here, he probably missed, whoever uh, put this chart together, probably meant to put verse 4 as well. In him was life, right? And the life was the light of men. So again, we're playing this with this word, life. Equivocation is, is going on here. In him was life. In him who? This word, which is eternally with God and was God, this creator word. In him was life. We know that this eternal word go on, goes on to be described as uh, synonymous with the Son who came into the world, with namely Yeshua, the incarnation of the eternal word into the Son of God, namely Jesus Christ. So in Yeshua was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, what life is it talking about? Is he talking about eternal life? Yes. Is he talking about physical life? Yes, again. Notice the equivocation on the word life, similar to the, uh, the John uh, passage later on where John says, the Son gives life to whom he will. Is he talking about eternal life? Yes. Is he talking about physical life? Yes, as well. So in the end, we have to say that life comes through the Son in both passages. But wait a minute, Genesis already told us that life came through the Father. So which one is it? All right. And the final passage, as you're beginning to notice, if we look at the final passage, is 2 Corinthians 3, 6, and 8. Let's read those passages. 2 Corinthians 6, I'm um, sorry, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, uh, reads, uh, speaking of Yeshua, by context, who has made us sufficient to be, uh, or God, depending on how you want to, where you want to start your context, such as the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, right? So both are in context. Uh, the writer to the book of Hebrews says, <clears throat> um, either God or Yeshua, depending on which context you want to put, I'm, I'm fine with either one, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So let me pause and interject. Since we're talking specifically about new covenant, right? Kinase diathekes in the Greek, then let's just in supply this as Yeshua. Uh, in the direct context, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Now, wait a minute. Now the writer's going to introduce the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit. And what else does he say? 
for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Again, we're um, we're uh, playing with the equivocation on the phrase life. Are we saying that the spirit gives eternal life? Yes. In the context of new covenant, we are talking about eternal life. The spirit gives eternal life. However, owing to the fact that way back in Genesis, God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils, breathed the breath of life. We're talking about spirit activity as well, even there. Um, in fact, it's the spirit of God who hovered over the face of the waters in, in Genesis uh, 1, 1. Then, um, then we can say that the spirit... The Holy Spirit gives eternal life, but it's the Spirit of God who also gives natural life or physical life. But wait a minute. It's the Spirit of God who gives life, not just God himself. It's the Spirit of God. He doesn't say the Father gives life. He doesn't say the Son gives life. He could have. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Son gives life. Right? Yeshua is the one who initiates and inaugurates the new covenant. It's through his blood, his sacrifice of the new covenant is made a reality. We could say that the Son gives life, but the writer to the book of Hebrews decided to say it's the Spirit who gives life. So here we have it coming full circle from the Genesis account. We have God the Father creating man and then breathing into his nostrils a play on word there, breath, spirit, wind, same word in the Hebrew, which is rock, breathing into man, and he becomes a life living creature, but he breathes his spirit into man. He breathes the breath of life into him. And so this kind of plays off this idea of the father is the creator who breathes and gives life to mankind. But wait a minute, the son is the creator in the book of John, and he's the one who also gives life. Could it be physical life? Could it be eternal life? Could it be both? Yes, the answer is yes to both of those questions. And then lastly, the writer to the book of Hebrews ties us, uh, brings it full circle by explaining to us that the Spirit gives life. Of course, the new covenant is, meant, is in context, so we could naturally associate this with spiritual life, but we can't discount the fact that God the Father breathes his own Spirit into mankind, causing them to become a living creature which is physical life. So the Spirit also gives physical life to humans. So what's the point in looking at all these passages together? It's the same thing I keep mentioning over and over and over again. Taken as a whole, the Scriptures give us a picture of one being known as God. They're not three separate beings who are working independently of one another. Otherwise, when God says, I am God, there is none other, his words are a lie. They're nonsense. God must be the only God. There must be only one being known as God in order for God's words to ring true. I am God, there is no other. I'm thinking of the passages out of Isaiah around chapter 44 and 45 and things like that. There is only one God. Besides that, we know that we affirm in the uh, Shema, from which the study gains its name, Heroes are the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God of us, and he is only one God. Right, ontologically speaking, he's only one God, but um, practically, he's, he's the only God that we will recognize, the God of us. Here is the Lord, our God, right? Our God is the only God there is. And Paul affirms this, our writers to the, the writers to the Apostolic Scriptures recognize this and affirm this. So we're only talking about one God. But when we look at the passages that we are um, encountering, then we have to come to some conclusions, even as uncomfortable as it makes us in our mind, that we're dealing with personhood of this God 
who, when we look at these persons, we're talking about separate and distinct actions and interdealings with mankind. Again, the best example is to remember that God is God, Jesus is deity, he's full God, and the Holy Spirit is also equally equal with God. But yet, there are roles and functions to play when we're talking about economic trinity versus ontological trinity. And when we talk about trinity of, econo- of economies or ec- economic trinity, we're talking about the roles and functions that each uh, person plays. Uh, the Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Um, the Holy Spirit uh, speaks of Yeshua, reminds the believers of, the refer- of Yeshua, uh, and brings us into fellowship with one another. The Father... Um, uh, 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 you know, gives the the, the, the um, kingdom to the son, uh, things like that. So um, the father is not the son, but the father is God. Jesus is not the father, but Jesus is God. That's how we're uh, understanding it. And that'll do it for our um, uh, Trinity study tonight. Um, turn now to the uh, liturgy, um, and then we'll watch the short little video, and then we're done for tonight. The liturgy is Genesis 17. We're discussing um, in our uh, Romans 14 uh, study about the um, relevancy of Israel as compared to the Gentile Christian readership in Paul's letter. Should the Gentile Christians even concern themselves with natural Israel um, who came before them? How are they still connected to one another? Is there any relationship between the two? Is circumcision still something that should be relevant to Jewish people and perhaps important to non-Jews, but maybe not um, practiced by them? How does all this fit in? Genesis 17 becomes a good passage to study because it talks about the Abrahamic covenant, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which is circumcision, and the um, length in which this particular covenant sign is to exist among uh, Israel, namely forever. So for our liturgy tonight, I'll just read all of the passages or all the verses. I think it's like six verses or so, 9 through 14, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Yeah, six verses. I'll read those tonight. And uh, then we won't look at this again next week. Starting right here over on the left side of the page, Genesis 17, 9 in the ESV reads, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. How long are they to keep the covenant? Throughout their generations. How long is the Abrahamic covenant still in effect? Throughout the generations of Abraham's offspring. Yeah, sounds like a really long time to me. Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So, sign of the covenant. Verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Right, very simple. Verse 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Verse 13, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh. A how long covenant? Until Jesus comes. Oh, sorry, it doesn't say that. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. So we know right away that Paul couldn't have been uprooting circumcision because if he did, then he's going directly against what Moshe wrote, God's thoughts right here in the book of Genesis. No, Paul could not have simply put an end to what God is establishing. And then the last verse, verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. 
So very simple and easy to understand if you just read it at face value and understand that God is establishing an eternal covenant with Abraham and Abraham's offspring. And the sign of this eternal covenant also has eternal uh, significance. Circumcision has not been done away with at the coming of Messiah, and it was certainly not uprooted in Paul. And we're going to read about that challenge in the very next passage in, in Galatians. But let's first go back and read the Hebrew real quick. Let me just rattle this off for you real quick, starting over on this side of the page. Starting in verse 9, the Hebrew says, Vayomer Elohim el Avraham va'ata et briti tishmorata v'zalacha acharecha l'dorotam. Verse 10, Zot briti asher tishmuru beini uveinichem uvein zaracha acharecha himolachem kol zachar. Verse 11, Un maltem et basar arlatchem vahaya laot brit beni uvenechem. Verse 12. Uven shmonat yamim yimolechem kol zachar lodorotechem. Yalid bait umichnat kesef mikol ben nechor asher lo mizarachahu. Verse 13. Himol yimol yalid betcha umiknat kaspecha vahaita briti bivsarachem livritolam. And the final verse, verse 14. Vaarel zuchor asher lo yimol et basar arlato vanichata hanefesh hahi mea meha et briti hefar. Now. Let's turn to the passage out of the Apostolic Scriptures. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And uh, these are the passages that many unfortunately turn to to somehow prove that Paul uprooted circumcision. Let's read it. Galatians 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Wow, circumcision is so powerful that it can actually uproot the work of Christ, I, as I say kind of tongue-in-cheek. All right, verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Obviously, we're talking about physical circumcision. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, i.e. circumcision. You've fallen away from grace. Wow, all those poor Jews who got circumcised, they severed from Christ. Verse 5, for through the Spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. No, I'm just, you know I'm poking fun, and you know I don't follow that line of theology. But he says in verse 6, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So, interestingly, God seems to express through Moshe that circumcision is relevant and important for Abraham and all those in his household for all his generations after him. But Paul seems to come along and say, uh, uncircumcision counts for nothing. You know, it's it, it, only faith working to love is what counts. Circumcision or uncircumcision really doesn't matter. Just, you know, don't worry about all that. Okay, we've got to rethink our theology here. Let's go back and read the Greek real quick. Starting um, right there. The Greek says, Te eleutheria hemas Christos eleutherosin stekete un kai me palenzugo douleas in a keste. Verse 2. Ide ego palas lego humen hati in peritimnestha uh, Christos humas uden o felese. 
verse 3. Marturomai de palen panti anthropo peratim namino hati o felites est in holantan naman poiesai. Verse 4. Katergethete apa Christu hoitenes in namo deke uste tes caritas exepesate. Verse 5. Hemes garpenumati ek pistios elpida. Decaiusunes apec decametha. And then verse 6. In gar Christo Jesu ute peratame tiescue ute acrobustia. Allah pistis di agapes in ergumene. And that'll do it for the liturgy for tonight. Let's turn to the short little video, and then after the video, we'll simply dismiss with prayer, okay? You're ready? Here we go. Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Torah teacher Ariel, where every week or so, we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. I don't want to single out a specific passage for this particular video. Instead, I want to take a little bit more time to look at the entire Word of God as a comprehensive whole. Before we can embark on a biblical understanding of any given subject, we need to establish some basic hermeneutic principles. Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation, especially the branch of theology that deals with the principles of scriptural interpretation. Properly understood, hermeneutic principles govern proper biblical interpretation. These principles establish the guidelines that are employed by laymen as well as scholars. Why is it so important to establish these principles? If we did not practice these established guidelines, the text would be left to the subjectivity of each individual interpreter and serious scriptural injury would be the result. Because well-meaning interpreters come from a variety of cultural, educational, and spiritual backgrounds, we can be sure that each one is going to approach any given text with a certain amount of personal bias. Such established principles are therefore needed and should be followed. One of the most important of these principles involves the preservation of biblical continuity. If the Torah establishes a truth in one passage, then the same truth is recognized as valid in all subsequent passages, even if it appears to be contradicting itself. As the complete, unified Word of God, we will do well to recognize that Scripture cannot contradict itself in any given set of passages. More specifically, if it can be shown that the Torah, the foundational part of the Old Testament, establishes the guidelines for the definition of a specific foundationally important topic, then it stands to reason, therefore, that these same guidelines govern the New Testament's quote-unquote definition of that particular topic as well. Let's close with a word of prayer. Abba, I bless your name and thank you for the opportunity to share and to study with the students. Thank you for your words. Thank you for your spirit, which gives life. Thank you for your son who died a horribly bloody death so that I might live. His blood was poured out so that I could receive the freedom to 
enter into your presence, to fellowship with you, to know that my sins have been washed away, to know that the guilt has been uh, wiped away, to know that the debt has been paid. He made a way for me to be reconciled to you. And so I bless you for his obedience. I thank you that um, that he was obedient to your words. Uh, continue to raise us up, protect us, give us a voice, give us moral clarity, give us spiritual sanity. Help us to understand that you are a God who's in control. And despite the fact that the world seems to be spinning out of control with all of its um, political nonsense, all of its... its um, um, it's uh, ethnic, ethical, in, ethnic, ethical, ethnic infighting. It's 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 uh, uh, racial infighting. It's social injustice. It's it's um, violence. It's it's uh, um, all of its um, perversion. All of its darkness. All of its confusion. All of its um, um, satanically empowered uh, activity. Lord, we know that you are still in control, and we look to you, and we will continue to hope in you and trust in you. Uh, seeking your face and reading your words and studying them. Um, raise us up and uh, continue to uh, go with us day in day, day after day. Um, help us to put a practicality to what we're learning. Lord, we're not just studying for study's sake. We're not just studying so that we can swell the brains in our heads. Lord, we want to study so that we can um, be pleasing to you, so that we can walk in a way that's um, exemplary of uh, who you are and what you have done for us as children of the living God. Um, We'll be careful, Lord, to give you the honor and the praise and the glory for all of these wonderful things. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.